Good morning, and thank you for joining us for the worship service this morning. Let me get a drink. I just sang some songs and my throat is dry. So are you as happy as I am that 2020 is behind us? I am willing to bet that you are. Because the year 2020 turned out to be a rather disappointing year from my perspective. I uh, wasn't anticipating a year like 2020. I was not prepared for a year like 2020. And to be quite honest, a lot of it left me very angry and confused. A lot of it left me conflicted in all of these in ways that I did not want I wouldn't mind being angry for something I understood and felt righteous about. I wouldn't mind being confused if I knew that I could suss out the answer. I wouldn't mind being conflicted if I knew that I would be able to determine the right path going forward. And I bet a lot of you have struggled with those same feelings and continue to struggle with those same feelings yourselves. And like me, you might even be asking yourself in the quietness of your own mind, or maybe even saying aloud, God, what is going on? Why is this happening? And when you do, you want an answer. But a new year is now upon us, and we find ourselves hoping for something better. I mean, things could get better, right? I mean, things are certainly going to change. There's, we know certain things are changing already, and, are, and we can foresee obvious differences in months ahead from what we have faced in months behind us. But what if things do not get better? I mean, what if things get worse in whatever way worse would be in your own understanding or circumstances? That's not a hopeful or cheery thought. That, uh, that wouldn't make for a happy new year. Well, today, I thought we would just look at a simple psalm, Psalm 93. And my hope and belief is that it will help us by way of reminder of the perspective, the lens through which God's people are to view the chaos and turmoil around us as we sojourn in this life. You see, throughout history, all mankind, even God's people, have faced evil, chaos, tragedy, pestilence, despair, war, suffering, and death. And in the Bible itself, if we attentively look at the history recorded there, we will see everywhere the pervasive effects of evil. And yet, in every single book of the God's Word, we are presented with a God who is over and behind and within every event that transpires. Now, we readily recognize God's hand at work when things are going good, when we're in a period that we would call blessed. Blessed by who? By God Himself. When everything is going according to our liking. 
but we struggle to understand his sovereignty over those events that we call bad. We want to explain away many of these events in history, but they persist still in nagging our hearts and minds with the question, why God? Yet God never makes any apology for what transpires. The judgments he sends, the persecutions he permits, even the disasters that befall. So how then are we to respond when God does not satisfy us with an explanation for his actions? Maybe we think God is not so much in control, or rather he is taking a hands-off approach. Maybe God is not to blame for all this, but he is working really hard to fix it all. And eventually he is going to succeed because he is super strong, super good. He's just more than anyone or anything else. Maybe he has such a high respect for our free will that he would never interfere, even if we were to make foolish and calamitous choices, which we constantly and inevitably do. Instead, he busies himself by coming in behind us, cleaning up our messes as best he can, maybe guiding and nudging things here and there to keep things from completely spinning out of control. Or maybe we just need a better perspective, and one that I admit is difficult for us because it is something that we cannot fully comprehend or understand, even though it is revealed by God himself. So let's look at Psalm 93 and let our minds be illuminated by what God's word says. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look into your word, we pray that you would reveal to us the truth found there, that you would comfort us by your spirit with understanding and, and acknowledgement, Lord, of your power, your majesty, your ruling over all that exists. We praise you, Lord, for your reign. In Jesus' name. Psalm 93. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He is put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Now, this psalm is divided into three sections. The first, uh, verses 1 and 2. The second, verses 3 and 4. And finally, verse 5. I'm going to look at each of those sections in order, and then conclude with some application that I have gained from my time in this psalm, in the hope that it will benefit you in the struggle of life as well, that has benefited me. So let's begin. This psalm is about the sovereignty of God. It's right there in the very first phrase, the Lord reigns. 
And notice in your Bibles, it's going to be a big capital L, small capital O-R-D. That is the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the self-existent, the eternal one. This is the name that God used of himself when he spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 3. God was sending Moses back to Egypt to deliver the Israelites. And Moses asked God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God replies, I am who I am. And then in verse 15 of Exodus 3, he says, God uses this name, which in English has been transliterated Yahweh or Jehovah. And he says, this is my name forever. Notice that this is not a title or office that God holds. This is the name by which he identifies himself. And it is tied to his stated identity, I am who I am. Now, in my sermon, I will be using the name Yahweh interchangeably with the Lord. This is to emphasize that his name refers to what theologians call the aseity of God. Nice word that you wouldn't know what it means unless you looked it up. But it does mean, I'm going to tell you, I'm get the right place here. Aseity means the property by which a being exists in and of itself. It refers to the understanding that God contains within himself the cause of himself. It uniquely and exclusively identifies God as sovereign. He is in absolute control, for there is no other to which he is beholden, dependent upon, or accountable to. So we can begin to see that God is fully God in the full reality of what it means to be God. If God does not reign, he is not God. This is what God does. The psalm goes on to say that Yahweh is robed in majesty and he has put on strength as his belt. Now this word majesty is interesting also. It can also be translated from the Hebrew as pride, arrogance, even haughtiness. It can also be translated glory. But in reference to God, who alone is God, and there is no other God beside him, what is arrogant and haughty in mankind is actually true and appropriate in God. God's reign, therefore, is majestic. His reign is powerful. His strength girds him. And in supremacy and strength, he establishes his creation. The world is established. It shall never be moved. His control and competence, therefore, are never in question. In Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7, God says this, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He rules over everything, inanimate nature, those who rebel against him, and those who obey him. He governs in absolute certainty, never making mistakes or having to correct what he has done. 
The sovereignty of Yahweh established from everlasting to everlasting means the fate of the entire world is under his dominion. Yet if we are willing to accept that the Lord gloriously and powerfully reigns as supreme being of the universe, how do we reconcile our consternation at all that we see in the world and in our lives? Is it possible to see all this and not give in to fear and doubt? How can God let all these things happen? Let's continue on to verses 3 and 4, where the picture changes from the topside view to what we are more used, used to, uh, the bottom side view, let's say. Here we are confronted with floods, thundering waters, and waves, the things that toss us about every day in our lives, chaos, tumult, calamity. In the Bible, raging water is often used as a metaphor of the tumult, the chaos, and the rebellion of the nations. To the Jewish mind, this was easily understood. The Jews, after all, were not a seafaring culture. We can contrast this with the picture John uses in the book of Revelation. And remember that John was first introduced to us as a fisherman who used boats on the Sea of Galilee. He knew something about water and the being upon it. In Revelation 21.1, John describes the scene this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, one interpretation of this passage is that it simply means there is no longer anything that is perilous or unpredictable or tumultuous. Or it could be taken literally. The implication would be the same. But we must understand this description of a sealess new earth as it would be interpreted by those alive when it was written. Today, we think of the sea as a recreational deck destination, one of beauty, relaxation, and escape. But to most of people living throughout human history, the ancient Polynesians notwithstanding, the sea was a place fraught with danger. It was full of mystery. It was the source of dangerous storms. And it was ventured upon only by the most intrepid and often at great risk and loss. Yet, when he describes the throne of God, John says this, And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Revelation 4, 6. And then in Revelation 15, 2, he says, describing the same scene, And I saw what appeared to be a sea mingled with fire. This scene is described clearly as metaphor, but it pictures something completely different than a raging sea and demonstrates God's complete and mighty control over what John could only liken to sea and fire, two things that we recognize as dangerous and unpredictable. So when we read in verse 3, and it speaks of the floods lifted up, lifted up their voices, lift up their roaring, we can understand this is a picture of the forces of chaos and evil and destruction that constantly rise up around us in seemingly increasing measure. And as it rises in crescendo 
in verse 3. Notice how in verse 4 it is drawn back down when we put our sovereign God back into the picture. Yahweh is explicitly mightier than the tumult we see raging around us. In his commentary on this psalm, John Calvin wrote this, Though the world may, to appearance, be shaken with violent commotions, this argues no defect in the government of God, since he can control them at once by his dreadful power. Now this power, we need to keep in mind, while his sovereignty is assured and complete over nature, his enemies and his children, God deals with each of these in different ways. Look how the earliest Christians viewed God's sovereignty over the greatest sin ever committed. In Acts 4, verses 27 and 28, they prayed this, For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The Lord governs everything perfectly, but not everything for the same purpose or outcome. The outcomes for Judas, Herod, and Pilate differed from that of Peter, James, and John, or for the other scattered disciples, or you or me. Our difficulties arise and our consternation comes in the fact that we do not see all of God's plan. And what we do not see, we either speculate about or question. And because we are centered on our own perspective, our speculations and limited understanding, we begin to doubt and fear. Corey, Corey Tenboom, who lived through some disruptive times herself and experienced much pain and loss, once said this, There is no panic in heaven. God has no problems only plans. And the Lord has revealed the breadth and extent of those plans in his word. Where we are blind is the depth of those plans, the currents, the very vibration of the molecules that will bring about those plans with glorious perfection. The Lord Jesus himself reveals this sovereignty for us. Consider two accounts that were written in the records of Jesus' life. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we have recorded Jesus miraculously calming a storm. The disciples were in the boat on the Sea of Galilee with Jesus when the weather turned really bad. Jesus was sleeping. Waves were crashing into the tiny boat, and the disciples were afraid that they would all be drowned. They woke Jesus, who rebuked rebuked the storm, and the Bible says there was a great calm. You can understand that the disciples were amazed and marveled at this, saying, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Later, recorded in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John, we read another event on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus walked on the water when the wind and the waves were against the disciples in a boat so that they could not come to, the, to him. He walks on the water. Peter, in his attempt to come to Jesus, is overwhelmed when he steps out. The disciples are once again amazed, and it says this time they worshiped him. This perfectly demonstrates God's sovereignty over all things. Jesus took a stroll on rough, choppy seas 
with the wind blowing in the early pre-dawn hours, and he did it so casually that the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. You know, thinking about this event, Jesus' actual physical body walking across the water molecules of the Sea of Galilee, it reminds me of this quote from R.C. Sproul. If there is one single molecule in this universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God's will ever be fulfilled. There is a certainty, an assurance, a hope, a trust, and a boldness of faith that is demonstrated for us and admonished to us in these recorded events from Jesus' life. And they are do not fear and do not doubt. Moving on to verse 5. It is because of who God is, his power demonstrated in all creation, that the revelation he has given of, of himself, of what he is about and what he is doing, the decrees, the testimonies we have written for us in Scripture, that is why that is trustworthy. If it is not explained to us why certain things happen, that does not negate the fact that it is revealed to us that God is sovereign over and in all that, tran- that transpires. Understanding the Lord for who he is, his majesty, strength, might, goodness, glory, should leave us no room for fear or doubt. Isaiah 55 is a beautiful picture of this kind, generous, compassionate God who is inexhaustible in his resources, offering freely to all who call upon him. But he gently reminds us that he is distinct from us, different than us, infinitely more than we are, and we must not rely upon our own understanding. In the middle of this wonderful chapter of his compassion, Yahweh reminds us of this in verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And in Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8, we read this, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make, your straight, make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Now this straight path spoken of here in Proverbs means continual progress toward the goal of moral quality of one's life path. That is the theme of much of the Proverbs. It means moral straightness, or in another word, holiness. Therefore, trusting upon God's decrees leads us to the holiness befitting one of his household, the family of God. The glorious beauty and divine goodness of God's sovereignty, therefore, should not cause us any consternation. Now, as Psalm 93 began with the Lord's good reign being established from of old, it concludes with proclaiming his lordship forevermore. This psalm, this testimony from God, 
is given to us to sustain us regardless of the circumstances around us. Okay, then. We just read this psalm proclaiming Yahweh's sovereignty. So, how can I apply this to my life in my troubles and in these unhappy times? Well, I would hope that it should be obvious, even in times like these. And if you've read Psalm 93 with us, and you're ready to say a hearty amen to the proclamation of Yahweh's sovereignty, his majesty, and his strength, and carry on in boldness of faith, regardless of what lies ahead, praise God, his decrees are very trustworthy. But it is likely, like me, you could sometimes find yourself wondering, speculating, postulating, what is God doing? Okay, I asked myself that question. What is my answer? Well, I have asked myself that question. I have come up with an answer. And the answer is, I don't really know. Seriously, in reality, I do not know all of God's plans. I am not privy to the counsel of the Godhead. I am not a part of any focus group God uses to run his plans by to judge whether or not to implement them. In fact, none of us are. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. His ways are beyond our ways. His is the lofty heavens. Ours is the ground at our feet. A friend of mine pointed out a wonderful verse to me recently. It is Psalm 147.5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Again, here in this one verse from the Psalms, we see proclaimed Yahweh's majesty and might. The God who reigns over all is great, abundant in power. But... He understands everything, too. And it is infinite, his understanding, not just his knowledge of what is going on, but his understanding of why is infinite as well. I am a finite being. You are, too. Everything except God himself is finite. Even if I were to know exactly what God was up to, In his sovereign rule of the universe, what makes me think that I would even understand it? Remember Jesus in the boat when the storm came up? Did you notice that it was Jesus' suggestion that they cross over to the other side of the lake? Did you notice that in Mark's account we are told that other boats went with them? Jesus was quite popular at this time because of his healings and miraculous signs. I imagine that there was quite a little flotilla on the sea when this squall suddenly came down upon them and put them all in great danger. Imagine being in one of those other boats. You think the disciples in the boat with Jesus were frightened to death? What if you were one of those other little tiny boats? But what is Jesus doing this whole time? He is sleeping. I mean, doesn't that make you scratch your head just a little bit? I mean, I get that Jesus was tired. The people, indeed, were a physical demand upon him. So I can see that he'd need to get some rest. 
But doesn't this strike you as, well, I don't know, maybe a little bit like sleeping on the job? Wouldn't you or I, having the power of God, wouldn't we be up and at the ready as soon as the first foamy cap appeared and shut that sucker down before any of those people suffered any undue anxiety? But Jesus, who I remind you had been sleeping through all of this anxiety, when awakened by his disciples, whom he loved, he did not seek to soothe them or validate their feelings with positive reinforcement or offer any sort of psychological support. Rather, he chides them for their little faith and asks them why they were so afraid. They were afraid because the circumstances all around them were indicative of a violent and chaotic death by drowning on a stormy lake. There is so much that seems wrong here. If we are to think that the Lord's ways are like our ways. We think our anxieties, our predicaments, our troubles, our suffering, our misery are wrong. We think that these things should not be. We think that these things are undue without purpose. If that is not what Yahweh says in his word, that is not what Jesus said in John 5:17. My father is working until now, and I am working. The Lord is always actively reigning. He is doing and accomplishing his will. Just because I am too limited in my finite understanding to see it or even comprehend it does not mean that anything is without its purpose in God's design and decree. So when we read in Romans 8.28, and we know that that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. When we read in Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When we read these verses, regardless of whatever other mental gymnastics we use to try to interpret them to make sense of the evil that is in the world, there is that one phrase that we just can't get around, all things. This means SARS, coronavirus 2, the virus causing the COVID-19 pandemic, exists and was created by God's will. This means the political and social turmoil of 2020 and beyond is working together with everything else for our good. It means that the financial hit you took this past year, the depletion of your savings or the debt you accumulated, the loss of your job or business will result in praise of our Lord and God. It means that whether you or I live or die today or tomorrow, we are called according to God's purpose. Psalm 93 concludes by stating Yahweh's decrees, his testimonies, his promises, his regulations, his words are trustworthy. We do not trust something just because we fully comprehend and understand it. If I was to say to you, trust me, it is assumed there is something I am knowledgeable about that you are not. 
Now, you can choose whether or not to place such a trust in someone based upon their character or their past record of trustworthiness. But let's think back again to the disciples with Jesus in the boat on the storm, in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus trusted his Father in heaven, and he knew his own power to save and to keep all whom his Father had given him. Jesus wants us to trust him and not fear. The Lord understands better than we do that we are in a dangerous and hostile place that is full of persecutions, but his word to us is fear not. In Matthew 10, Jesus is telling the 12 disciples of the persecutions to come, but he reminds them that not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the Father. That even every hair on our heads is accounted for. Jesus then says, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. How can you even draw a breath of God's air and not recognize how trustworthy he is. You can't even explain how you know to breathe. I mean, I know we've grown in knowledge regarding the biological and biochemical mechanisms that regulate respiration, but what intelligence and understanding went into the design of such a perfectly working system? How many conscious breaths have you taken? Are you responsible for your lifetime of breathing? Or is God... I am so happy that God is infinite, and I am not. He has made us with the capacity to know him. And when we are perfected, made complete in heaven, that capacity for knowledge will be infinite. But though we will always have that infinite capacity, we will never be full. We will never know all there is to know of our infinite Lord. We will always be finite in our knowledge and understanding of who Yahweh is. The infinite God will always have more of himself to give us. And that means that I will always be able to see and comprehend more of the beauty of what he has done in the past, in 2020, in whatever time I have left ahead, in the time that I will be with him, Like Jewel, the unicorn, in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, we will forever be able to say, come further up, come further in, where there will always be higher and deeper and further in to go. Anyway, that is the application I am able to make from the acknowledgement of Yahweh's sovereignty. Such a perspective, I find, helps me as I view the, tap- the tapestry of the present. I know the topside view is glorious, though I can only see the jumbled bottom. If you struggle finding peace because of what swirls around you, and you cry out to God, but the storm rages on, I can only tell you to trust him. His decrees are trustworthy. It might help to remember that Jesus slept in the bow of a tiny boat 
on a cushion when the waves were crashing over the sides and his disciples were frightened to death. This Sunday is not just the first Sunday of the year, but it also just happens to be the first Sunday of the month, which as we, um, as Tom reminded us earlier, is Communion Sunday for us here at uh, Bridges. Now, I made reference to, in my sermon, to the prayer of those early Christians from Acts 4. But that is not the only uh, reference to God's sovereignty in regards to the crucifixion in those early chapters of Acts. Peter, when he was addressing the uh, people after the Holy Spirit had come at Pentecost, said this in Acts 2, 23, this man, speaking of Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, the greatest sin ever committed. And this death of Jesus upon the cross is what we proclaim with the bread and the cup when we take the Lord's Supper, communion. Jesus commands us to do this in remembrance of him. Jesus knew what the Father's will was for him. Even though it seemed wrong to the disciples, even though the cross is still foolishness to the world, the cross was and is God's sovereign plan and purpose to save us. If you think that there must have been some better way, Jesus himself refutes that in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prays, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The cup was not. Therefore, Jesus, on the very night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us drink together. Pray with me. Holy Spirit of God, so often our feelings are flat or fearful, and we even doubt that you are with us, even as Jesus had promised. Grant us confidence, comfort, boldness, and peace. Thank you for your guidance and the wonderful things you've done and are doing. Help us not to cringe, but to take heart. Amen. God bless you.
and Happy New Year, if for no other, other reason, then we're that much closer to Christ's return.